Hello, and thank you for tuning in today. We're going to be learning all about the immune system with Dr. Liz Marnick. Liz is a scientist, teacher, and science communicator, as well as a mom, runner, photographer, and all-around wonderful human being. She and I connected online three years ago through the Nerdy Neighborhood, which is a group of women who came together during the pandemic to provide no-nonsense, science-based advice. In this episode, we talk about the basics of our immune systems and what we can do to keep them as healthy as possible. We also discuss myths and misinformation because there's no shortage of scams out there claiming to be immune-boosting or anti-inflammatory. Dr. Marnick is currently an assistant professor at Hassan University in Maine. She's also very active on social media as Science Wiz Liz and puts out a newsletter on Substack. So be sure to check out the show notes for links to Liz's work and other recommended resources. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I am really looking forward to chatting about all things immunology. I want to get started, though, with a bit about you, both your scientific background and what you do now. Yeah, so I have a PhD, and my PhD is actually officially in genetics. It's from Tufts University, but my dissertation research was actually all focused on immunology. So what I did was I used genetic tools to engineer different mice to lack certain components of the immune system, and then I studied what happened. So my research really was focused on understanding how does the immune system function normally, and then what happens that contributes to individuals who get autoimmune disease. So I did that. And then after I graduated, I did a postdoc. And during that time, I knew I really wanted to go into education. So I am now an assistant professor where I teach a variety of science topics. Most of them are microbiology and general biology. And then in my spare time, I do science communication, mostly on Instagram, under the handle Science Wiz Liz. I really love your account. I think you do a really great job of simplifying things. And it's always very aesthetically pleasing, but it's also a nice level of information that's still sophisticated, but not confusing. So shout out to your page. I highly recommend checking it out. Well, thank you. So why don't we start with some immune system fundamentals, and then we can move into some practical advice and some myth busting from there. Okay. So to get started, can you describe in simple terms, what is the immune system and what are the key components? Our immune system is our defense against pathogens. Pathogens are things like bacteria, viruses, fungi that can get uh, on us or inside of us and cause some sort of disease. So most commonly, people are probably going to think of COVID-19, which is the disease that's caused by SARS-CoV-2. So that's an example of a pathogen. And the job of our immune system is to be able to identify what doesn't belong, so what's a pathogen, versus what does belong and is part of our own body because we have lots of tissues and lots of different parts of our body and we want our immune system to know the difference so that it targets a pathogen but doesn't accidentally cause disease like autoimmune disease by attacking itself. So... When you're thinking of the immune system, there are two branches of the immune system, and they're both built of different kinds of cells. And the first part of our immune system is what we call the innate immune system. 
And I like to equate this part of the immune system to first responders. So let's say that you are riding a bicycle and you accidentally fall down and you get hurt. If you need medical attention, the first people that are going to get there are going to be fire department, police officers, potentially EMTs, and they're going to evaluate and see what happened and see whether or not they can take care of the situation or whether or not you need more specialized help. And that's the innate immune system. So there are multiple cells. There's things like neutrophils and natural killer cells and eosinophils. And these are all different parts of your innate immune system whose job it is, is to do that initial evaluation. And sometimes that's enough. Sometimes they can get rid of that pathogen before you even realize that you've been sick. But sometimes that's not enough. So let's say you broke your leg when you fell down off your bike. You're going to need more specialized help, which means that the first responders are going to have to transfer you to the hospital to be able to see doctors and other medical providers who have that specialized training in dealing with a broken bone. And that's your adaptive immune response. So when your innate immune system can't get rid of the pathogen in time, it will recruit help. And that help comes from your adaptive immune system. And these are the things like B cells and antibodies and CD4 T cells and CD8 T cells that we often now hear about in the news because we've been living in a pandemic. So now they're part of our normal lexicon. And then the cool thing about your adaptive immune system is that it then forms memory. So after you've recovered from this infection, if you recover, what will happen is your adaptive immune system will forever, in some cases, some cases memory is shorter, but your immune system will then remember that pathogen if it's exposed to it again. Then let's say you were exposed to COVID-19 and then three weeks later, you're exposed to it again. In that interval of time, your immune system should still be able to recognize the pathogen and get rid of it before you are infected or prevent you from getting as sick as you did that first time. So the primary job is that our immune system identifies a pathogen. That's going to happen by the innate immune system. And then if the innate immune system can't get rid of that pathogen on their own, they're going to then turn on the adaptive immune system and elicit that specialized help to help you get rid of that infection. I like the first responders analogy a lot. I also find it helpful to think of the innate immune system as very much the generalists and then the um, adaptive immune system as the specialists because each T and B cell has a very specific target it goes after. So let's build on that and talk about what exactly is a healthy immune system. And from there, you know, I want to explore a bit about what factors influence the health of our immune system. How much control do we really have over the health of that system? Yeah, so in a healthy immune system, in an ideal situation, your immune system is going to be able to distinguish between something that is foreign, like a pathogen that doesn't belong, and your own body, your own tissue and cells and organs. And that's important because when your immune system can't do that, we then get things like autoimmune disease. So there are different kinds of autoimmune diseases. And in those cases, patients have an immune system that is recognizing parts of their own body as if it were a pathogen and attacking it like it was a pathogen. So in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, that immune system response is attacking the lining of their joint. In patients with other types of autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's, their immune system is attacking their thyroid cells. And that's not what we want to happen in normal response. So that would be an example of an unhealthy response. 
And then the other side of that coin is that we want our immune system to be able to recognize a pathogen and then get rid of that pathogen so that we don't die of that infection. Because the alternative is if we don't get rid of the pathogen, we eventually are likely going to die from the infection that that pathogen is causing. Mm-hmm. So in a healthy immune response, there is this balance. I like to think about it as a scale where you want your immune system to be working well enough to identify a pathogen and get rid of it, but not so much that it's going to accidentally attack its own tissues and cause issues like autoimmune disease. Now, I know this is probably a question for which there's no simple answer, but I can see how you could paint this spectrum, how on one end you might have someone's immune system who was underactive in a way and not fully able to rise to the challenges or your immunosuppressed, immunocompromised. And on the other extreme, you have an overactive immune system of some kind of autoimmune condition. But most people are kind of in the middle, right? They don't have an autoimmune disease. They're not officially immunosuppressed. What factors influence where you are in the middle and what's going on in the middle there? Why do some people seem to always get sick and some people don't, but yet they're not officially immunocompromised or they don't have a disease designation, but yet there's a lot of variation in there. So what's beneath that? A lot of those things I like to think about, and when I talk about this in my microbiology course, we call them host factors. So these are characteristics of an individual that make them more or less susceptible, so more or less likely to become ill from an exposure to a pathogen to get an infectious disease. And one of the really big factors that we unfortunately don't really have much of a say in changing is our genetics. So we all have different genetics and our genetics is going to be responsible for how well our immune system functions. So we know that some individuals might have a genetic mutation that makes it so that they don't have a normal immune response and they can't mount an adaptive immune response. So these people would lack the ability to get rid of an infectious disease. And then we know other people who have a genetic predisposition to getting an autoimmune disease. And then there's all those people in the middle, like you talked about, who they're not immune suppressed due to a genetic issue and they don't have an autoimmune disease, but there's still that variability. And that variability comes from all the different genetics that we are inheriting from our ancestors that's influencing how well our immune system can function. So that's really like the big one that we really can't change. So I like to think about it based on our genetics. We probably have a maximum threshold of how well our immune system can work. Mm -hmm. And then behaviors are going to influence that from there. Occupations are one factor. So if an individual is a medical provider, they're going to be exposed to a lot of pathogens. They're going to likely get more ill more often just because they're exposed more often versus if you work home all the time, you're probably not getting sick as much because you're not exposed as much. And then there's factors like exercise and stress and diet. Those things can help prove how well your immune system is working up to that point that's set by your genetics because it's not going to overcome any sort of genetic variation that is impairing the ability of your immune response to identify or get rid of a pathogen. And we don't have time to unpack each of those factors like diet and exercise and stress, but I wonder if you can paint just a bit of a picture of like mechanistically beneath that, how does something like stress impact your immune system and how well do we actually understand what's changing your body when you're stressed, for example? 
this is one of the areas where we're still kind of figuring it out. There's a lot about the immune system that we still don't completely know, which is one of the reasons mm-hmm. I find immunology so fascinating that there is all this other factors that we're still figuring out how these cells work and how they do what they do. But in terms of stress, when an individual is stressed, one of the hormones that they're going to be releasing is cortisol. And we know that cortisol can have an impact on other cells. And one of the things it can do is kind of have an immunosuppressive effect where it makes it a little bit harder for your immune system cells to function at their optimal function. That again is set by that genetic level. And it's going to vary a little bit based on again, everybody's different behaviors and genetics, because ultimately this is all multiple things that are coming together to influence how well your immune system is functioning. So in the terms of stress, we know it's a little bit of hormones. And then also a lot of times if somebody is stressed, they're probably not taking care of themselves as much as they should be. So maybe they're not sleeping as well. So not sleeping as well, you really need to rest to be able to have all of your cells and all of your body rejuvenate. If you're not taking care of yourself and eating a healthy diet, because again, you're stressed, then you're not going to get the nutrients that your body needs to have those cells be able to function at that optimal for you level. Yeah. I guess just the bigger picture is that your immune cells are functioning in this environment and that all of your cells have the potential to produce signals that other cells hear, right? So if you stub your toe, that can have repercussions for the signaling environment of your immune cells. And again, it's at that level of you have your genetics that set your baseline. Things like stress or an improper diet could bring it down compared to what that optimal threshold is for you. I'd love to talk a bit about inflammation because that is a word that comes up a lot. And I think there's a lot of confusion about is inflammation all bad? Should everything we do be as anti-inflammatory as possible? What's really going on there? What does that word mean? And how should we be thinking about our choices with respect to inflammation? Yeah, so inflammation is definitely not always bad. So it's a normal part of our immune response. This is because one of the things that happens with inflammation is typically you get an increase of blood flow to the area that's inflamed. And that doesn't always feel pleasant because you have more blood to that area, your nerves might be irritated. But the benefit of that inflammation is that inside of your blood are your immune system cells. So by increasing inflammation at a site of infection, that's actually a good thing because that is making sure that all of those immune system cells that need to get to that area that's infected can get there. In the process of inflammation, Your immune system has a bunch of cells that live throughout your body, and they send out a signal that tells your body, hey, this part of my body is infected. So let's say you get a cut on your hand, and then the cut on your hand gets infected, then the immune system cells in your hand are going to send out a signal that tells your immune system that you've been invaded by a bacteria that's causing an infection. And then that's going to cause inflammation. So you're going to see redness, and you're going to see swelling. Because all of that blood is going to go to that area so that your immune system cells, those backup that your cells need, is going to be able to get to that area to help you get over that infection. So we consider that acute inflammation. So that's inflammation that's happening in the short term because 
you have an injury or you have an infection and you need those cells to get to that area to help you recover from that. Mm -hmm. But the opposite side of that coin is chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation isn't good. So chronic inflammation, though, usually is happening for a very specific reason. So it might be somebody who has a chronic infection. This is somebody who maybe has an infection that they're unaware of that is persisting. So they haven't gotten proper treatment yet, and that causes constant inflammation. Or with people who have autoimmune diseases, they're going to see a lot of chronic inflammation because their immune system is identifying their own body as foreign and causing that inflammation to happen. So under those conditions, inflammation can be harmful because Mm -hmm. the immune response is not occurring like it should normally. But for general people, having some inflammation when you are exposed to a pathogen is actually a really good thing. When you hear talk about anti-inflammatory strategies, it often seems to be outside of that, outside of the context of an infection. The message seems to be we're all sort of inflamed for no good reason and what can we do to bring that down? Is there some truth to that? I mean, I guess one question is how do you measure generalized inflammation? And is it true that as a population, we're somehow more inflamed than we used to be and we should all be thinking about that? I don't think it's something that general people really need to be worrying about unless they have a condition that they know is increasing their inflammation. There are blood tests that you can do to measure inflammation. And those blood tests are usually done also as a part of like the diagnostic criteria for people who have autoimmune disease. So they measure inflammation that's generalized throughout your body. But overall, we don't really see tons of evidence that like everyone's walking around in a state of constant inflammation. And again, there has to be this balance, right? So anything to either extreme is going to be harmful. So if we are suppressing our inflammatory response all the time, even for people who have autoimmune disease, that can cause a lot of side effects. So people who have autoimmune disease and are on medication to suppress their inflammation are going to have side effects because of that, because their immune system is not going to be able to function the way it needs to. So they're going to be more at risk for other factors like infectious diseases. So there has to be that balance. So if we're all walking around taking medications or things to try to reduce our inflammation when we don't need to be, that actually could have a harmful consequence. Because again, you need to have an inflammatory response to certain things like infection or like a pathogen. And a lot of the products that are sold on the market that are labeled but not FDA approved, like supplements of that category, might say that they're targeting inflammation but not actually be doing it. Or if they are doing that, then again, that could actually be harmful to you if you're then exposed to a pathogen. It's all about having an inflammatory response when you need to. Is it fair to say that prioritizing low inflammation is not a priority for you aside from let's not get sick, basically? Yeah, I think what I do is I try to do other things that I know are beneficial. So I try to manage my stress by running and meditating. And making Mm -hmm. sure that my kids and I have a well-balanced diet. So I try to do those things that I know are just going to be able to boost my overall Mm well-being and hopefully make it so that my immune system and my kids' immune system can function to the closest it can to its optimal baseline based on, again, that genetic factor. I eat a well-balanced diet. I don't like follow an anti-inflammatory diet. There is no really bad food. All food is good in certain contexts, right? Mm -hmm in moderation, 
a well-balanced diet is a beneficial thing. That brings me to another term, immune boosting. So is there such thing as a product that is immune boosting? No. (laughs) Simple answer. (laughs) Yeah. Again, this goes back to if you're eating a well-balanced diet, getting adequate sleep, your immune system is probably functioning as well as it can be. What can boost your immune system is going to be vaccinations because that is helping to generate immunity to something so that if you're then exposed to that again later on after you've been vaccinated, your immune system recognizes that pathogen and can respond quickly to either block the infection or to block you from getting as sick as you would have otherwise. So in some cases, I guess you could consider vaccination as an immune booster. But outside of that, vitamins and supplements are likely not going to be doing anything unless you happen to be an individual who maybe you are deficient in vitamin D because your doctor has told you you're deficient in vitamin D. Then yes, you would benefit from increasing your intake of vitamin D foods or taking a supplement to get it back to that normal level. But for most people, that's just going to essentially be expenses that are not going to actually do anything to actually improve your immune response. Because again, a lot of it's genetic. So a lot of it you can't change. And the things that you can change are going to be things like your sleep habits, your exercise, how well of a balanced diet you're eating to make sure you're getting all those nutrients that you need to function optimally. So if you're in the category where for whatever reason you do have nutritional deficiencies and that's something you and your doctor can talk about and you may benefit from vitamins or something similar, or for the general population, most of us really don't have the ability to boost our immune system by taking random supplements. I think this message comes up again and again in different contexts that adding some sort of vitamin is really only beneficial to someone who is deficient. And in many cases, those deficiencies are not as common as you might think. I don't know, what's your response to, you probably hear this a lot, it's like, well, I might as well take it just in case, just to cover my bases. I mean, I just, yeah, I struggle with that. Yeah. I feel like it's one of the things where I try to balance the benefit with the risk. So you can overdose on certain vitamins. So you would want to be careful about those. I can't even remember off the top of my head which ones you can overdose on. But then certain ones like vitamin C is a common one, right? People are like, take a lot of vitamin C, it will help you. And if you have excess vitamin C, your body is going to essentially pee it out. You're going to excrete all that excess in your urine. If you have the money and that's what you want to spend your money on, the risk of taking extra vitamin C is low. For most people, it can also cause some diarrhea and other symptoms. So you should make sure you're taking something that is not going to have a detrimental side effect. But otherwise, if there's really no risk, then I feel like it's up to the person. But again, I would definitely consider the fact that you might be able to spend that money somewhere else. Maybe save the money on vitamins and use it to go for a massage to help you relax and de-stress, and that actually might be more beneficial to you. Absolutely. Another thing that came up in a recent podcast was about the lack of purity in a lot of supplements as well and contaminants. So I feel like I don't want to open that box up because of the lack of regulation and oversight. There has to be a significant need there for me if I'm going to open that box. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like you could maybe eat a lot of extra oranges instead of buying a pill that you don't actually know how much vitamin C it contains for real. One thing we didn't talk about is differences between kids and adults, because I think it's kind of fascinating. And as we've all been following the science of the pandemic, we've seen how 
a pathogen can affect kids and adults differently. And so can you shed a little bit of light on what's going on there and whether any of these messages you talked about are different depending on your age and stage of life? Yes, infants, especially newborns, when they're first born, their immune system is not functioning fully yet. After they're born, they're still developing their immune system. So that's why infants, especially like babies under three months of age, are very high risk for lots of different infectious diseases because their immune system can't recognize pathogens as well as older kids or adults. And their immune system can't get rid of the pathogens as well as older kids or adults. My daughter had a fever at three weeks old, which is an emergency because a three-week-old with a fever could be something not serious, like a common cold, or it could be meningitis or sepsis or something that could kill the infant. And that's because their immune system is still developing. Their innate immune system cells are still turning on and figuring out how to work and their adaptive immune system is still developing. So that's one factor is like age on that spectrum. And then the opposite end of the spectrum are those who are elderly or seniors. They also tend to be more high risk. And that's because over time, your immune system gets less good at identifying pathogens and getting rid of them. And exactly why and how is still an area of active research. The lab next to me when I did my PhD actually studied that. They were studying how to improve the immune response in those who were elderly to things like the flu vaccine and to others. Because we don't really entirely know why, but we do see this age-related decline in the ability of your immune system to identify a pathogen and get rid of it without causing harm. That's why infants and elderly tend to usually be the ones who are more severely affected in terms of infectious diseases. And the like age of decline is kind of hard to determine. Some people might say it happens after 50. Some people might say it happens after 70. Some people might say it happens after 80. And we definitely know that there is like a spectrum. So infants, especially under one, are going to be higher risk. And then the older you get in terms of like somebody who's 100 is going to be higher risk than somebody who's 70. So the higher age bracket is also a range. But there really isn't a clear like delineating age that like, hey, once you hit this age, you have an immune system that isn't functioning as well. And again, it's probably is also partly genetics that it likely varies depending on an individual. So we've talked about inflammation and immune boosting and strategies to optimize your immune health a little bit about misinformation. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to highlight in this conversation, given your mission to educate the public. Are there specific areas that you feel are often misunderstood or specific myths that you see often that we haven't touched on? Yeah, I think the one thing that I often address is this misconception that there is a major difference between like natural immunity, which is immunity acquired from an infection, versus vaccination immunity. Mm -hmm. which is immunity acquired after a vaccination. And at the end of the day, there really isn't a major difference. Your immune system is responding to that foreign pathogen, whether it be the actual virus or a piece of the virus that you're getting from a vaccine Mm -hmm. in the same exact way. The same cells are responding in both conditions. The same memory cells are going to respond in both conditions. Sometimes there can be a little bit of variation in the intensity of that response and how long the memory lasts. But any potential downside of that is going to be overcome by the fact that 
pathogens have consequences. One of the things that pathogens do, and we talk a lot about this in my microbiology class, is that they have mechanisms of avoiding your immune system because they can only survive if they can hide from your immune system or manipulate your immune system in some way. Mm-hmm. So pathogens have evolved these mechanisms of actually a lot of times suppressing your immune response or harming your immune response or damaging other tissues and cells in the process because they need to do that in order for them to survive. And that is going to cause damage to your cells and to your tissues. And in some cases, that damage might be irreversible and that might lead somebody to die from an infectious disease or may cause long-term consequences. Mm -hmm. Whereas the vaccine is not going to have the ability to do that because it's engineered, designed by the scientists to elicit an immune response so that you make those memory cells. Yeah, I remember a number of people, and probably you're one of them, who didn't like the term natural immunity. And they would rather hear something like immunity from an infection or immunity from a vaccine because both types of immunity are natural. It's not like artificial immunity. Yeah, it's one of those old immunology terms that refers to what we mean by natural is acquired in nature. Mm -hmm. So it's like you've acquired that immunity because you went out in the world and were exposed to this pathogen. But natural now has a different connotation than it did then. So I do think it would be beneficial for us to kind of switch that terminology now that we're living in a different society where natural means something very different to a certain class of people. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on from your pandemic perspective? And I know you're really great about being aware of immunocompromised community members and that that's just something that other people should be thinking about as well. Yeah, I think this is really hard. And it's definitely something that I think is especially hard at this stage of the pandemic where a lot of individuals have moved on and are not thinking about it at all anymore. And hospitals, doctors' offices are getting rid of their masking policies. And what I hear from my followers who are immune compromised is that they really feel forgotten because we've now entered the stage and it kind of has been like this in some ways for a while where it's a very individualized perspective. So people are kind of tasked with the responsibility of keeping themselves safe from an infectious disease, which is hard to do because it's infectious. So if somebody in the population has it, it's going to spread. And it makes it so that they really can't be members of the society in the way that they want to. One of the questions you asked me ahead of time was how many people are immune compromised? And it was kind of hard to find a number. The best estimate I could find was about 6% of the population is immune. Wow, that's a lot. Which is actually a lot of people. And this would encompass people who are on certain types of medications, people who have had organ transplants, people who might have a genetic defect in their immune response. So this is a whole category of people. But that's a lot of people who now have this risk of going out in society because for them, an infectious disease could kill them because their immune system can't function the way that it can for the rest of individuals who have a normal functioning immune response. Mm -hmm. So this is why I really wish that the public health infrastructure was set up more in a way that at least like now I have people who are telling me that they don't feel safe going to their doctor's appointment Mm -hmm. because doctors and individuals in these settings are no longer masking. It seems to me like it's a pretty low bar to be like, let's mask in hospitals and medical settings and public spaces 
where it's easy to mask. Like it's easy to mask in a grocery store. Who cares? You're not eating while you're walking through the grocery store or you don't need to be unmasked in the hospital. It seems to me like there are certain things we could implement as a society to help those individuals feel more valued since they are important members of society. Some of them are doctors and nurses who we need who now don't feel safe at work because these implementations have been removed. I'll tell you the number one thing I would like to see is better sick leave policies universally because keeping sick people home is probably the most effective thing you can do. Yeah, it's like easy to tell people stay home when you're sick, except for the fact that you can't if you don't have sick time or you have to work a certain amount of hours or you can't pay your rent. It's easy to say, but actually hard to do. Yeah. So we need to wrap up here for the sake of time, but I wondered if you could give some closing advice on on separating fact from fiction and any of your recommended resources. Yeah. So I think definitely one of the important things to do is when you're reading something on the internet, stop to try to verify it before you share it. And look for sources that are coming from places like the CDC or what's the Canadian version of the CDC? In Canada, we have the Public Health Agency of Canada at the national level. And we also have some great provincial agencies, such as the BC CDC here in British Columbia. You want to look to see if the information can be verified from sources like that. Typically, if it gives you a very strong emotional response, it may be being presented in a way purposely to manipulate you in terms of your emotions. So definitely like try to pause and think about what you're about to share and then see if you can verify that information from other reputable sources. So it's getting harder to know what those reputable sources are, but that could be a whole other very long conversation. Absolutely. But yeah, pausing before your share should really be a habit we all build. Absolutely. Yeah. And for resources, for immunology, the British Immunology Society has some really great graphics and short videos for people who might want to look up information that way. Amoeba Sisters, for people who kind of just want to learn more about science in general, they have great videos and animations for people. They have a YouTube channel. And then you can find me on Instagram at Science with Liz. And there's a lot of us in the nerdy neighborhood who have really great science accounts who can give you that. And you have a Substack newsletter. Are you planning to keep at that? Yes. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, I do have a Substack newsletter. It's called From the Science Classroom. And I do cover a lot of these sorts of topics in that newsletter. That newsletter is geared towards basic science concepts. A lot of it does have the lens of COVID-19 because that's what we're still thinking about. But I recently talked about some of the complications that can happen to people after they've recovered from an infectious disease, which we haven't had a chance to talk about. And I have some other posts about host factors if you want to hear more about that. So that's also a really great place and it's free. So you can sign up there. Well, thank you, Liz, for taking the time today and also for all that you do in your science communication efforts. I know it is a lot of work. I'm grateful to all that you offer to everyone out here. Well, thank you so much for having me and thanks for all of your work. Take care. Take care.